the Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook, talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. Welcome to the Instructor Podcast. As always, I am your jolly northern host, Terry Cook, and I'm delighted to be here and even more delighted that you have chosen to listen. This is a show where I speak to experts, leaders, innovators and game changers to look at ways that we can improve your driving school and potentially make you an even more awesome driving instructor. And as always, today is no different. I am joined by another wonderful guest in Hannah Campbell. Now, Hannah is a mental health trainer and an expert in all things mental health. And it seemed really appropriate to get her on because as this goes out on Sunday the 21st, it is the end of Mental Health Awareness Week. So first of all, I hope you're all looking after your mental health. And hope you've all done something to improve that this week and potentially even had a look at some of the resources available. However, back to today's episode, because today we are going to be looking at mental health specifically, looking at what it is, how we can monitor it and how we can actually improve it, as well as taking a look at things like anxiety and also listening to Hannah's surprise at the fact that we do not have to have any training whatsoever around safeguarding. And she actually gives some advice on that as well. Well, just before we dive into the show, I want to take a moment to remind you all to subscribe. So wherever you are listening, whether it is Apple or Spotify or Google or wherever it might be, go and click subscribe now. So as soon as this episode drops, it goes straight into your feed. And while you're over there, if you're feeling extra nice, then leave me a nice little five-star review as well. But for now, let's get stuck into the show. And today on the Instructor Podcast, we are joined by Hannah Campbell of Soul Focus. How are we doing, Hannah? Oh, not too bad, thank you. Yourself? Uh, all the better for seeing your smiley face. Uh, delighted that you've joined us today during Mental Health Awareness Week. And that is something that we kind of timed it this way specifically to uh, to talk about mental health and particularly around anxiety, which is the, you know, the, 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 the theme for this year's Mental Health Awareness Week. But before we do that... I like to ask all of my guests a, a very specific question because the tagline for this show is that I speak to leaders, experts, innovators, and game changers. Uh, so I'm wondering which one or ones of those are you, leader, expert, innovator, game changer? I don't like the term expert, but I think that is probably where I would fall Maybe a maybe a bit of a game changer because I do it slightly differently. Oh, right. Okay. So, double questions follow up with expert in what and what are you game changing? Mental health, um, specifically. I, I mean, I have a real passion for how childhood trauma affects our mental health as well, and I would say that I approach it differently because I have a very common sense, down to earth, practical way of going about it. I like to use lots of terrible metaphors that make it really, really visual and really easy to understand just for everyday people. Yeah. And I know that uh, we, we've done a, or I've done a little bit of work with you previously and uh, I can see that in you, you know, you, it, it's like you, you explain it to me in a way that makes sense. And I need things explained in simply sometimes. So, so it, it clearly works. Um, and I, I love the word expert. It seems to split people 50-50. There's some that really despise it and, and others like me that, that love it. And I don't know where that, that comes from. But you, 
Uh, let me get this right. You work more with either sort of younger people or people that work with younger people, don't you? Yes. Yes. I support people that support people. Yes. Uh, which is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, also driving instructors. You know, a lot of the people that we work with, 17, 18, and that side of it. And I think that was kind of the first thing I wanted to touch on with you because we, we've spoken before. And I was very interested in your reaction when we we spoke about one thing in particular. So as driving instructors, a lot of the people who work with are 17, 18, 19, that sort of age. But there are some people that can learn to drive at 16. You, know, you can get a special dispensation if uh, you're essentially a carer. And then there's different uh, sort of schools that way can people under the age of 16 can go and practice like on tracks and stuff like that. And I told you that uh, we don't need, we're not required to have any, you know, formal training to work with 17 and under, uh, only a DBS check. And you were quite surprised by that. Yeah, I think in any other setting, there's generally, I mean, at least a DBS, but there would normally be some kind of safeguarding or awareness of safeguarding. I mean, I've worked in schools, I've worked with youth groups, I've worked as a youth leader, and there's always been some knowledge of safeguarding. And you said that they're just, it's, it's not compulsory, it's, it's not spoken about. And I, yeah, I found that really unusual. I mean, the option is there. You know, there is, obviously, we can go out and take it off its own back, and, and some of our associations offer that within their, you know, training as well. But it, I, I rarely see it promoted anywhere. Do you? I, mean, look, I know you can't speak for our industry, but from an outside looking in, do you think it's something that either should be mandatory or at least as in driving shutters, we perhaps should be taking it upon ourselves to go and look at? I'm surprised that there's not much more regulation about it. And even from your own standing point, you're on your own in a vehicle with someone for your own sakes, just to keep yourself safe. Safeguarding is a two-way thing as well, I think. You, you don't know when you take those people into your into your cars <laughs> you don't know anything about them other than the fact that they want to learn to drive but you don't know what that person's background is if they're okay what what mental or emotional state that that person is in what you're potentially dealing with and the nature of that relationship is it becomes one of quite deep trust i would imagine this person has to trust you to instruct them to keep them safe on the roads they also have to keep you safe because you're then becoming a passenger of them whilst they're learning to to drive a vehicle. If you become concerned about them, for me, it would be common sense to know how to make them safe. It just, it just seems like quite a rational thing to do. I, I don't want to go too deep into the safeguarding today, but I think I would just like to ask you sort of a question around that because you mentioned if if you're concerned about them. What... What would you say is our responsibility, not just as driving instructors, but as anyone in you know that, that works for young people in that situation? If you know, maybe we're seeing signs of self harm, or we're becoming concerned about their their mental state. What would you say is actually our responsibility in that situation? Mm, to check in with them at the very least. Are you okay? I'm worried about you. Um, to have some basic knowledge of safeguarding, sort of signposting organisations available in the local area, numbers that they could call. I mean, even things like, it sounds really daft, but like human trafficking. <laughs> you don't know who you've got in the car. You just silly things like that. We have a civic duty as, as human beings, if we think something like that is happening, to report it. But yeah, just to be able to have a conversation around it, to be able to say, actually, you know, 
because this person is with you, you know, maybe once or twice a week for however many weeks, months, I don't know, depending on how long they take to go through this process, to be able to say, you know, I've noticed you're not yourself, actually, or I've noticed when you've been getting in the car, you've got some scars on your arms, or I've noticed you've been getting in the car and your mood's really low lately. Is everything okay? Would you like some information about people that can help? It doesn't have to be anything really scary. It doesn't have to be like a massive thing. They might say, actually, no, do you know what? It's fine. I used to I used to self-harm when I was younger. I've just had a bit of a bad patch at the moment, but I'm all right. Lovely, cool. I mean, it's something that I I notice a lot. Maybe a lot's the wrong term, but I have at least three or four students at the minute where there's some visible scar in there that I would guess is from self-harm. I've never felt comfortable specifically using that term with them or talking about the scarring, but I have, and I do specifically ask that question. Just, you know, how are you today? Is there anything I can help you with? Just want to check in, you know, that kind of stuff. So would you say that even if, like in my situation, you're not comfortable saying those exact words, just at least having that checking is important? Yeah, and self-harm isn't always cutting scars i mean people some people you won't always notice that some people will burn themselves some people shut hands and fingers in drawers or doors some people pull their hair um anything that constitutes harm to yourself can be classed as self-harm that could be binge drinking or driving recklessly walking in front of cars um anything that is done that isn't taking care of yourself to a degree really could be classed as self-harm but yeah just having that quick check-in saying i know you're not yourself lately is everything all right uh, I think that's really big because one of the, the prominent things in our industry is uh, cancellations. So people in cancelling lessons. And I know when I first started as an instructor, I, I had this mentality of if you cancel your lessons, you're going to get charged. If you keep cancelling, you're getting cancelled and dropped. And and yes, we have to look after our business. So there's an element of that that's always going to be there. However, I found that when I started talking to the students about why they were cancelling and actually try to dig in and, and find out, um, there's some students that were cancelling because you know, they were, they were struggling financially. So they were cancelling, like, at a 48-hour cancellation period, they were cancelling, like, 49 hours before, you know, and they were struggling financially. And it's like, okay, well, let's work this out. Can we take pause on our lessons? Or, you know, and we're able to speak to them. There were others that were going through a tough time personally. There were others that were, and that have been scared of what's coming up on lessons. You know, they knew we were coming to, to roundabouts, one particular person I can remember in, in particular. And we had that conversation, like, okay, well, let, let's work on that then so do you think just having that com- i'm kind of repeating the question but i think i'm doing it more for emphasis than anything else but do you think having that conversation is often the most important thing yeah communicating i mean especially with things like that if people are then avoiding things because they're anxious about what they're going to cover in their lessons you're you're always going to keep yourself safe your brain is built to keep you safe so even if consciously they're not aware that that's why they're cancelling the lesson and they're telling themselves it's because they're too busy that way for it's because actually they they've you know they've got to go and see their auntie if they've booked the lesson they probably want to do the lesson but if subconsciously they're going oh, I can't do roundabouts because the roundabouts are terrible or I can't make a right hand turn or I can't do bay parking because I'm just going to be terrible at it talking it through and actually being able to rationalize the skills that they've already got or the confidence that they've already built is going to alleviate some of that stress and the anxiety and the fear that's behind it so yeah always having just have a conversation i like that so well, let's move on then because uh, as, as we mentioned at the start uh, is mental health awareness week and 
I want to ask you a very broad question because we get you hear the phrase mental health a lot. And in some ways it sounds almost obvious as to what it should be, but I'm going to ask you the broad question of what what do we mean by mental health? Yeah, you do hear it a lot. You, you get you get people that go, Oh, I've got some mental health at the moment. Well, my friend's got some mental health. We've all got mental health. Um, we haven't picked it up at the drive through or gone down the shops and grabbed a box of it. It is very much the same as your physical health. But when you when you when you talk about mental health, you're talking about your emotional and psychological well-being. That can affect your physical well-being as well. You can have physical responses to stress, depression, anxiety, PTSD. It is how emotionally and mentally and psychologically well you are at any given point in time. And that can fluctuate. It can go up and down. When people talk about having mental health, what they actually mean is they've got a mental health condition or a mental health illness at that point in time. And they can be a diagnosed illness. So you might have gone to the doctor after a period of a, a real long stretch of low mood. You're finding it really hard to motivate yourself. You can go to the doctor and the doctor will say, yeah, no, you've definitely got depression. You've you reached the criteria for it. And you know, they'll either give you steps that you can take forward and might prescribe you medication that can help alleviate those symptoms. They might invite you to take exercise more often to start looking at some of the things that you can do to to repair your mental well-being. But you can also be mentally unwell without a diagnosis. Would you say that covers that? <laughs> yeah, I think so, because it, it's just a really broad spectrum, isn't it? I mean, and, uh... Again, I'm not going to get into the details of this, but I, I came to you for, for a bit of help recently. And mine was, the, the issue I was having, it was nothing overly traumatic. You know, there was nothing that was going to be clinically diagnosed as as depression, I think we'll probably say. But you gave me some really, really good sort of coping strategies and techniques specifically for me that I was able to go and put into practice that have helped massively. And I, w- I would say I was kind of on that lower end of that spectrum, but still did me good coming to someone and saying, can you help, please? And I think that brings me to the question of, why do you think so many people are dismissive of, of mental health rather than physical health, especially with that that almost lower end of the spectrum like I mentioned? I think I think it's one of those things that you need to look after all the time. And a lot of people don't think about doing things for their mental well-being until they're in a bad place whereas with your physical health you know that you need to eat well you need to to exercise regularly you're going to walk the dog you're going to go out for a bike ride whatever it is that you do play tennis golf skateboard i don't know fishing fishing is not really doesn't really count does it um but you you wouldn't think i'll only go for a walk once once my leg's broken, you'd be you'd be walking all the time. So people don't tend to think, actually, I need that walk because it lifts my mood or it reduces stress. I connect with people socially because it enables me to have that sense of belonging, the social connection that we need. You, you need to be doing stuff for it all the time. And people don't. And I think that's where the difference is there. Why do you think they don't? It's neglected. It's taken for granted that you'll feel good um, until you don't. It's not really spoken about in the same way. People don't learn it from childhood. They learn in school you need to eat five a day, you need to exercise, you do PE lessons. 
that, I mean, they are introducing things in schools now, but it's definitely not spoken about as much that actually you need to do these things in order to keep your mood at a good point or to alleviate stress, to release anxiety, to, I mean, I talk about having a stress bucket. Everyone has a different size stress bucket. <laughs> this is where the terrible metaphors come in. And, and in, people of different backgrounds have different size stress buckets and those stress buckets can increase and decrease in size based on what's going around and going on in your life at any one point in time. So a child might have a fairly large stress bucket. They play outside lots already. They have lots of social connections because they're already in school, in classes with groups of friends. They are encouraged to do things. They have creative outlets. They draw, they play, they use Play-Doh, lots of sensory things going on. So they release stress very quickly, those small stresses of like small squabbles in the classroom. Maybe they've got SATs tests. Maybe they've got pressure from a teacher to do well in a whatever. As you're an adult, those opportunities naturally decrease. Your your social circle tends to shrink. Your stresses increase. So unless you maintain doing things that release stress, your stress bucket isn't going to empty as efficiently and, and we naturally just stop doing those things. We aren't running around twice a day. We aren't walking to and from school. We aren't sat with loads of people to talk to. And so the, the stress is emptying slower, but the things that are filling the stress bucket are constantly increasing. I like that. And, and it, it always, I don't know, yeah, it does. It still surprises me to this day how much of what we are as people now comes from our childhood. You know, it's a, people take the mick out of it, don't they? But it you know, I've done some work on that in the past and it's, we are who we raised to be in a lot of ways and whether that's rebelling against something or whether that's embracing something. And one of the things that I was thinking about recently, this is coming slightly off the topic, but I think it's relevant, is that as kids, we're, we're told to take pride in stuff. You know, we're encouraged. You do like the a good drawing. It's it's on the fridge. You, you know, you, you're told to celebrate this stuff. But then as you get older, if you celebrate something often, you're told you're a show off. I mean, to use a very specific example in our industry, in the instructor industry, uh, we have something called the standards check where we get assessed on our ability to teach and you either get an A or a B or a fail. If you get an A and you go into one of the Facebook groups and you oh, I'm really pleased I passed with an A today, there'll be people out there that are criticizing, saying you're showing off. The same way if you go and take a course that maybe gets some letters after your name or something like that, and you tag that, and there'll be people belittling you saying, why are you putting letters after your name? And often it's a case of, I've done this thing I'm really proud of, and I want to go and shout about it. But as adults, we're almost told not to. Do you think, not just with a pride thing, but do you think that's our case in a lot of things as we grow up? And it, and it can come down to conditioning as well. If you're not used to being supported and celebrated for that sense of achievement, you may not be used to other people sharing that very openly and being pleased about it. I want to go back to what you said before, though, because you were talking about sort of the mental health, and I thought you made a good point about how we don't look after it until something goes wrong. So I think the first thing I want to say is how can we monitor it? Because I think often people wait until something goes drastically wrong before they 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 um, they make any impact. But how could you start to notice initially if your mental health is tearing? How could you monitor it? Being aware that everyone's normal is different. So what's normal for me might be entirely different for you. Um, growing your sense of self awareness 
being able to check in with yourself on a, on a kind of daily basis, you know, how am I feeling? Noticing where your feelings are coming from as well. Even just two things, like if you're waiting for the kettle to boil in the morning, you're making a cup of tea or coffee, just taking that moment, breathing, connecting, noticing how you feel in your own body, being able to name three feelings is a really, really nice, simple thing. Once you've got those three feelings, like maybe I'm slightly anxious because I've got a dentist appointment at 11 today, that's where that's coming from. I'm a little bit tired, I didn't sleep well last night. I'm a little bit annoyed, the kids have left their shoes in the hallway again. That kind of thing. Just three feelings, where are they coming from? What is it that's triggering them? And then going on from that, you can build on it as what can I do about that? Is it something I can change? Is it something I have any control over? Do I just need to accept it and let it go? noticing those things and being very aware of how you feel is a really good way of being able to notice actually I'm I'm really annoyed a lot more of the time than I would be normally or I don't feel like doing anything you when you're aware of how you feel on a day-to-day week-to-week basis you're much more able to notice changes um you can use things like journaling as well obviously to keep track of things like some people use mood trackers with the squares um it's not for everyone, but there are apps you can use as well where you can track and you can fill in a little circle each day. How are you feeling? What was your mood today? But being being aware, cultivating a sense of self-awareness is, I think, is a really good starting point for being in control of your sort of your own mental well-being and noticing and knowing what's normal for you and what's not. Everyone has bad days, off days, bad months, bad weeks. But being aware that actually this is this is going on too long now. This is not my normal baseline, as it were. Oh, there's a lot of stuff I want to touch back on there because I you mentioned journaling. Now I hate journaling. Um, I writing stuff down and, and paragraphs about how I feel and, and stuff like that. It just it does not sync with me. Um, I used to I've stopped doing this now, but I used to record. Instead, I used to just make like I used to call it my captain's log, you know, <laughs> do my captain's log every day. Um, but the one thing I do do is that there's certain things that I track every day. So, you know, the minute I'm trying to lose weight, so I track my weight daily, I track my podcast numbers, you know, all that kind of stuff. And just when you said that, I thought, I'm going to add that to my list, them free feelings. Because you mentioned about this is going on too long. One of the things I like to do is look back at the previous numbers. If I'm looking back at my previous feelings, you might not notice that you felt angry every day, every morning when you wake up, but you then you notice rate it. rate it out of 10. Use a scoring system. It's quite CBT-based, but use a scoring system. You know, zero is rubbish, 10 is your best day, or flip it around, whichever way you want to score it. Zero could be the worst, 10 could be your happiest. You also mentioned about having those days where you feel like you don't want to do anything. Now... I I struggled a lot with that. So without getting too personal about this, for, for what happened to me for the last year, I struggled a lot with that this year. And I felt really guilty about it. But there was a moment when I thought, I think I just need a couple of days of doing nothing. And I literally just kind of did nothing for it. I cancelled my lessons, cancelled the podcasting stuff, and just took a few days of doing nothing and accepted that's what I needed. And... Do you think there's an issue there sometimes people accept not not being willing to accept that they need to do nothing occasionally? Mm. Especially when you tie in I don't wanna I don't wanna criticize the school system. British people in particular 
are often raised to show up, to turn up, to be on constantly. We have incentivized being present at all points, which is where presenteeism comes from. And even in school, you have attendance awards. You are rewarded for being in attendance, which means that you feel bad if you're not in attendance. If I'm not here, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. So it's something that lots of people struggle with. Um, it's why you get people to turn up to work, even though they don't feel like doing things. It's the same for you guys there, then that is your work. Although nobody else is going to know, nobody's peering over your desk to see if you're there. Your students, you, you don't want to let people down. There can be real guilt associated with, if I cancel my lessons, I'm letting my students down, I'm letting myself down, I'm letting my family down, I'm not bringing in the money. But actually... Just having two days off isn't going to kill anyone. Nothing's going to burn. And you'll probably feel recharged and refreshed from it. And it, the, the metaphor I've used on training courses around this is if you try to run your car on empty without going and putting more fuel in, more diesel, petrol, whatever you're running, your car would eventually stop running. <laughs> it just wouldn't work anymore. You would get no further. And so you can't expect your body to do that, whether that's your mind, your physicality, anything else. You, you just need to stop sometimes and recharge. There's nothing wrong with that. We'll be back in just a moment with more from Hannah and more about mental health. But we're just taking a quick pause to give a shout out to the latest sign-ups to the Instructor Podcast Premium. And they are Neil Whiteman, Josephine DeFalco-Fisher, and Kevin Selwood. So first of all, keep your ears peeled for the excellent podcast with Kevin Selwood. He uh, he had me as a guest on his Excel podcast recently, so if you want more Terry goodness, be sure to check that out. But big thank you to those guys for signing up. I really appreciate everyone that contributes towards the show in that way, and they get immediate access to over 100 exclusive trainings, including the two latest which are Neil Whiteman joined me on the latest edition of the Standards Check Checklist as we continue driving our way through the 17 competencies. And Sam Harper did an episode with me on how mindfulness can help with the Standards Check, both in the build-up to it and on the day. So a very uh, Standard Check-centric a premium month which is a little bit unusual with the Instructor Podcast Premium. We have a lot of stuff over there and it's not all Standards Check based. We also had this month another awesome expert session, another packed house coming to watch. Kev and Tracy Field of Confident Drivers deliver an excellent expert session on what we can do regularly on lessons to help our students with their nerves on test day, focusing specifically on confidence. And I and everyone that watched got an awful lot from it. So if you want to find out more, the best place to go is www.theinstructorpodcast.com or hang about to the end of the show and I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But for now, let's get stuck into the rest of this episode. Well, I like that. I mean, you can use that for, for, for sleep and for, you know, breathing and for eating and, and taking a break and everything. So uh, I like that. I think it's, I think you're right. It's hard though, isn't it? You know, to... To, to take a step back sometimes one of the in fact I'd, maybe i'm going to ask you about this later on but I'll, I'll t i think it ties in now in that one of the big changes i made to my diary so over covid we had to take a lot of time off as instructors because we weren't allowed to teach and one of the big changes i made when i came back was i put more time in between my lessons because i used to do one lesson the next one would be 15 minutes after 
now I have often have like an hour between lessons and I'll you know you can catch me like in Morrison's car park doing yoga outside of my car or going for a walk or reading a book or anything and I've never enjoyed lessons more and you know is that something you'd potentially encourage as well take not again everyone's going to be different but doing what's right for you and if what's right for you is taking a break yeah yeah and just because someone else is doing doesn't mean that you have to but yeah going with what works for you and that again goes back to that stress bucket what whatever you need to do to empty your stress bucket might be entirely different for someone else i think the other thing i just wanted to, to touch on there was um like you spoke about knowing how you're feeling one of the the big things that i am probably a bit infatuated with this to be honest is when i notice a certain feeling creeping up i, I want to work out why I immediately go into where's that coming from? And I will kind of really dig down and try and work out, you know, maybe it's a lesson I've just had. Maybe it's something I've got planned for the evening or maybe it's something that I'm thinking about from a week ago. And I just found that when I can work out some uh, why I'm feeling a, some, a certain way, the first thing it does immediately, I feel better because I know it's not just me being a numpty. There's an actual reason behind it. And then I can... But the second thing is I can then start to put things in place right in the future. You know, if I know that I don't like working three days on a, a row, then I could work two days on one day off or, or however that would, you know, whatever it might be. So do you think, well, I'm going to rephrase that. How important is it that we actually sort of work out sometimes why, where those feelings are coming from? It's different for everyone. I think I... Hmm. I work in a very person-centered way. Me personally, I am a massive fan of the the idea that knowledge is power. It gives you options. It gives you the oversight to be able to make informed decisions and informed choices. But some people don't always want to know why, and that's that's down to them. I think it really is a personal choice. It, it's up to you as a person and how you feel. If you're somebody much like yourself, who feels better when they can understand what's going on for them and why that's happening. And that works really well. Some people don't want to know though, and they feel more comfortable just going, actually, I, I don't understand that. And that's okay. No, that makes sense. Um, so you gave us some sort of good tips around how we can monitor our mental health, but like you mentioned, the, 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 probably the best way is to be preemptive of it and try and look after it before it, it goes wrong. So what sort of things can we do? Um, I don't know, regularly or, or to, to keep, uh, you know, to try and prevent that from going wrong? I would say looking after your basic human needs. We all have a need for social connection in some way or another, whether that's in person, online, through social groups, sports, even just walking the dog and saying hello to people whilst you're walking through the park. It still counts as social connection. We need to eat well what we actually eat and nourish our bodies with will affect our well-being emotionally as well um socially physically do we have security looking at those needs i mean are are we keeping ourselves safe is our home stable and secure are we meeting our financial needs in that way because our security especially financial stress is a massive it has a massive impact on people Financial stress is one of the biggest killers, particularly in men within the UK, um, looking at what we can do to alleviate that stress if it is there. And 
Are we getting our emotional needs met through people as well? Are our relationships nurturing? Are they nourishing us? How can we improve on that if they aren't looking for the answers there? Because we all have a need for for human contact with people. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some good points there. And uh, I don't know, one that you said immediately stuck out for me, which was eating, because if I start going downhill a little bit with my mental health, my eating gets worse as a result of that, which I then know makes my mental and physical health worse, which then makes me eat worse. And that's that's a spiral for me. And I often find that I'm usually actually okay at having eaten fairly well until I start having those bad days. And I find that one of the days for me to get out of the bad days is to cook a meal. Because by cooking it, and especially if I get some music on and stuff like that, and you feel like you cooked a proper meal, and it's really nice, and it's not a kebab that you just bought or whatever. And then it has the after effect of you've put some nutrition into your body. So I think that would probably work as a, a, a way of sort of the preemptiveness, but also as a recovery tactic, or at least it does for me. Um, I want to speak to you just a little bit about anxiety as well, then. I think it's... It's, it's relevant, definitely, because as you mentioned, that's the, the theme of this year's uh, Mental Health Awareness Week. And I'm going to ask you for another def definition. Um, what's a definition, or how would you describe uh, the word anxiety? How would I describe the word anxiety? Uh, I, I mean, technically, anxiety is a bodily response to stress. I think anxiety often gets lumped in as being fearful. It is often, people think of that dictionary definition of being anxious, but it's not always presented in that way. It can be, it can be having too much energy when you see people that are like uh, pen clickers, people that click their pens, you know, they're yeah at their desks, the people that are fidgeting with their keys and they're tapping their feet. It can be people that become overly irritable about things that they would normally be able to let wash over them. You can see it in people that, I, I mentioned having too much energy, it can go the other way, not enough energy. People become incredibly lethargic, they feel like they're wading through mud or fast-paced breathing. Um, racing, like heart racing, palpitations, clammy hands. You might see people that become even angry. Some people get angry with it. And I, I think that's not something that people often associate with being fearful or anxious. But there are, you know, there are so many different variations of how it might manifest in someone. But yeah, it's generally triggered by some form of stressor. Um. You've just described 90% of students going for a driving test, which amused me greatly. Um, so just to, to clarify then, because I, I think that's the first time I've heard it phrased that way, it would be like the, the physical manifestation of stress, essentially. Yeah, yeah. that is what I would, I would say that that is. And I think just before we move into looking at sort of the anxiety itself, the, do you think that, this this fascinates me do you think people use the term too easily um and obviously you can't speak for learners but i'll, I'll use that example of um and a learner will sometimes just say they they failed because they were nervous or because they got anxiety or whatever and a lot of the time it's true 
But do you think people sometimes use that as a bit of a crutch, a bit of a, this is an excuse for why I've done what I've done? I don't know if it's an excuse. I do think the term can be used too much, especially if people are referring to it as a, as a, like a diagnosed, I've got anxiety, rather than saying, I'm a little bit anxious. Having anxiety is is debilitating. It, it can be absolutely, completely debilitating. Or saying I'm a little bit nervous or actually my nerves got the better of me is a better approximation than saying actually I've got. Because for people that are genuinely struggling with full-blown anxiety, that can, can destroy their lives for a period of time. It, it really does turn things upside down and it shouldn't be belittled or or palmed off as being just a little bit worried because it's not just being a little bit worried. It can be huge and it can be over. I mean, it can be attached with other mental health conditions as well. But at that point, if it's, if it's nerves over a driving test, probably better to say, actually, I'm a little bit nervous or I didn't sleep very well because I'm worried. Does it sometimes prevent like a mental block that stops people from doing something? It can add to confusion and you can find yourself with a brain fog, real brain fog, not being able to think clearly, not being able to get through your own thoughts properly um, or even being able to prioritise at that point because it's all quite overwhelming and things can then build up and that can lead to panic attacks. So that potentially would get in the way of doing things. Was a, That was a personal question, that one, a personal curiosity question. Um, let's... So can you sort of say the, the 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 physical or some of the ways it can display itself physically? So if we were just pulled up to the driving test centre and we're waiting for the examiner or we're in the car waiting to get out and that student is clearly displaying some either nervous symptoms or some symptoms of anxiety, you know, you can see they're getting overexcited, they're sweaty, they're gripping the wheel, you know, that kind of stuff. What would we do to accommodate that do you think or to help with that maybe a better word i think potentially talking it through before you get to that situation teaching them maybe some breathing techniques that they can use before it gets to that point so that if you're trying to teach someone something when they're already anxious and they're already in a bit of a state they're not going to hear it properly they're not going to be able to to take that on board it would be like trying to get a two-year-old to dress themselves much like trying to get an octopus into a net bag, it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, just arms flailing everywhere and the mind's going round in circles. So I think teaching them to be able to ground themselves, using all five senses so that they can use some slow breathing. So if they get themselves into that state, you know that you're going to get there in plenty of time. They've got time to calm themselves down. They're taking lots of nice, long, slow, deep breaths, getting that oxygen into the brain again, being able to calm that nervous system back down and focusing on where they are if they sometimes you'll see with anxiety you get into a habit of having all or nothing thinking you get faulty thinking patterns so they get to the point where i'm never going to do this i'm never going to pass so being able to find the evidence that actually you've done this before remember you've you've done that before remember the other day you managed to park like this before finding evidence that disproves that faulty thinking and being able to put them back on that track and fill them with confidence and reassurance nice and calm I love that you've answered it that way. I've actually, um, on my notes here, I've got uh, long-term and short-term coping strategies. And I think it's really, um, I don't know, noticeable from, from where my mindset is that I sort of immediately asking you for the, the short-term one. And 
you know, there was a, a couple of years ago, uh, I remember saying to a student about on their test, they'd asked me what, this was before the test, like a few weeks before the test, they asked me what advice I would give them on the day of the test. And I'm like, well, I don't give you any advice around driving because I don't want to be giving you last minute driving advice. You should have everything covered before you go for your test. So I'll just give you some advice around breathing and managing nerves. And as I heard myself say it, I was like, why am I not doing that before the test as well, rather than giving them it on the day, which is exactly what you've just said. And that was like a, a little bit of an epiphany moment for me. And ever since then, I've tried to incorporate that into lessons rather than leaving it to the last minute. And I have a lot less, sorry, I have a lot more calm students now going for tests. So I think that what you've said there, it, it, it's something that I almost accidentally discovered because I was doing the wrong thing. And and yeah. Um, and um, again, there is that idea of reassuring them. You know, if, if they know, and I'll, I'll use the example of, Bay Park, and if, as you said, if, if they know that they can Bay Park, but they're panicking on the day, then if you can point that out to them and say, well, your last seven, you've done fine, so why would number eight be bad? Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a a great example. So that's kind of as well the long-term and short-term strategy, isn't it? You know, if you do that in the build-up to it, you've then got that to fall back on when it starts, if they start having that, that nerves and panic. Yeah, I think if somebody is prone to panic then that that's a skill you would be building for yeah. the duration i would imagine of working with them you might not be able to answer this but i'm going to ask it anyway um there's uh where do you think the line is because there has to be a line somewhere because obviously i'm not a trained therapist i'm not a trained psychologist or anything like that so where do you think the line would be from me being able to help someone with, you know, nerves and maybe a bit of anxiety and me saying, um, I'm going to recommend you to Hannah, for example, where do you think that line would be? I mean, potentially, obviously, your own comfort zone. You know, as instructors, what you're comfortable working with in your vehicle. I don't know how nervous some people must be when they come to learn to drive. I mean, it was strange for me. I'd only ever really watched people drive automatic cars for years when I took my, I mean, it's many years ago when I learned to drive. <laughs> but I do remember thinking, oh, this is quite strange because I'd just never really seen anyone drive a manual. So I had no idea what happened. <laughs> I just didn't, I'd just never seen it after, just never seen anyone drive a manual. It was an odd thing, but that was, I was not nervous about it. It was more just, this is really unusual because I've, I've never seen it happen. Um, but I, I can imagine that some people must be very nervous, particularly if they've just never really been in cars much or anything like that. I think knowing your own limitation between, if if something is genuinely making you uncomfortable or feel like this is unsafe, that I would probably recommend that they go and speak to someone. Um, yeah, I mean, there must be guidance for you on how how nervous a person can be before they're actually comfortable to take a driving lesson. I don't know what. Um, I mean, that's a. Uh... All right. Okay. So I'm trying not to be too politically, but there isn't really. There's guidance if we want it. So, like I say, we can go and find it. You know, but there's nothing that's specifically given to us when we come into this industry. Um, some trainers uh, of your instructors are better than others and will provide that. Um, but a lot of us will just have to take it upon ourselves to go and find it. 
And a lot of people are very, a lot of instructors, and I'm not meaning to criticize all of them because there's some really good people out there, but a lot of them are very dismissive of, a lot of instructors are very dismissive of nerves and anxiety. And a lot of instructors, I think, use nerves and anxiety as a reason for their students failing, where sometimes it's just that they haven't taught them properly. So I think there's a lot of excuse making in the industry, but there's also not a lot that's you know given to us in that sense of this is what you want to do so i think it's it's fascinating when i talk to people like yourselves who are genuinely well surely this should be available for you and it's part of the reason why i talk to people like you so that instructors can listen and take away some of this information some away from these tips but also hopefully some of them will go i want to learn more about that i'm going to go speak to hannah um i could do a really good segue there to uh to get you to give your details. I'm not going to do that now. I'll leave that to the end. But in fact, we kind of moved on to instructors there. So I, I want to touch on that for a minute because I mentioned about us having the, what we call a standards check where we're assessed. That's, that's probably the thing that most instructors get the most nervous and anxious about because essentially if we fail three times, we lose his career. We lo- we're not allowed to do it anymore. So the way that we would deal with our nerves and the anxiety there would that literally just be the same advice that we would offer to our students yeah i'd say so um yeah giving yourself proof that you've done this before that you can do it again finding evidence to disprove anything when you're coming up with things saying well i can't do this or i'm not going to be any good remind yourself actually there have been there have been points, find actual situations before where you've done something successfully to remove that and say, actually, no, I know I can do this because. So you're giving yourself that evidence that disproves it. I think I know the answer to this, but I've got to play devil's advocate slightly with the question anyway. How important is it to start doing that earlier and do it consistently? So it's not just because I know I've got to stand the check in six weeks, so I'll start doing it now that you start using some of those calming techniques or breathing techniques or self-talk, the positive self-talk or whatever, how important is that we're doing that day-to-day rather than just when we've got a standards check? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'm not saying walk around and berate yourself <laughs> the, rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the year. I don't think anyone would feel very good if they were doing that. It's, I'd say having a, a measure of positive self-talk is always useful. And the same with... Um, we were talking about journaling earlier. Something that you can do that will improve your mood and the way that you're feeling is having a gratitude list or a gratitude practice of some kind. Because if you're regularly finding things to be thankful for or that you're pleased with or noting down like a small achievement that you've made regularly, your brain is more inclined to find those things because it's going to look for them because our brains naturally will look for the negative they'll look for the bad things they'll look for the accidents why the news is always full of terrible things but if you're training it to say actually i'm really grateful i had several good lessons this week actually i'm really grateful three of my students passed their tests this week i'm really grateful for the opportunity to provide lovely lessons i'm grateful for the opportunity to be putting more safe drivers into the world whatever it might be that you're grateful for i'm grateful for the nice meal i had today you're more likely to find those things that actually I'm really I'm really lucky to have that. This is a really nice thing. This is making my life better. It's not all bad. No, and I still get surprised at the amount of negativity towards stuff like that. You know, people that see it as um, woo-woo 
or however you want to phrase it. And it's like, it made a difference to me. I've got a wind book in my car. Uh, I've got two wind books, one at home, one in my car. And uh, after every lesson, I'll write down three things I was happy with from that lesson. You know, I'll also make notes in a different thing about stuff I could do better, but I'm particularly for this, looking at stuff I do well. And, you know, if I'm having a bad week, I can go back and flick through that and remind myself, oh, I did this one, did this one. It just, it just boosts that that confidence, I think, which is always great. I was, I bet you feel better after reading it. Yeah, and I, like I said, I go back to my first point of, I, I think I'll ask you this, actually, that, that first point of, I don't understand why there's so much negativity around things like that. Um, so obviously, from your perspective, the people that come to you, I'd imagine, would be people that are more embracing of things like that. But you must see it as well, that negativity. Where do you think that that comes from? I think... In my own personal world, I grew up in a very old schoolhouse. Uh, my father was much older and was very much of a generation where you just pulled your boots up or pulled your socks up or got on with it. Keep your chin up, put your shoulders back, man up, don't be a big girl's blouse. And there is still a lot of that generational fallout <laughs> still still kind of cultivating itself within people it is still there there is that kind of notion that it's weak or it's it's just not the done thing and it and it's it's you know it's it's going to take time to change that i think it is a generational thing as well it is becoming more okay it's becoming more accepted and the more that we talk about it this is i mean this is why i do what i do is because the more you talk about it the more it becomes okay, the more accepting people are of doing something about how you're feeling. The thing is, the people that listen to this podcast generally uh, are awesome people. Obviously, they've got great taste, but they're also awesome because they're embracing this kind of stuff. They're embracing this uh, different training. They're embracing uh, the fact that training doesn't just involve learning to pass a standards check. It can be safeguarding. It can be mental health it can be learning how to manage your social media better or, or whatever there is still a large proportion of of our industry that that is very strong against that you know and i go back to how we started this conversation off today were you being surprised that well, there's nothing mandatory and that a lot of people avoid that that thing so um what would you say to anyone that was that heard us talking today, maybe a new listener to the podcast that was for the first time and heard us saying that, you know, we should be taking care of his mental health. We should be considering going on some sort of safeguard training, you know, that kind of stuff. And their opinion was, oh, it's all wishy-washy nonsense. Your response be to that, to that person? I think they're responsible for whoever's in the car with them at the time to a degree. They're not responsible for their life outside of that car, but that person is potentially going to open up to you about things that they may not open up to anyone else about. Just giving yourself the skills and the knowledge to feel like you've answered in a way that keeps you and them safe, I think that's responsible and ethically professional. I think that's uh, also a lovely note to finish on. So I'm going to finish with probably the hardest question you'll get today. It's a question that everyone seems to dislike, but I, I like it, which is, uh, what's the ultimate driving song? What song are we adding to my uh, Instructor Podcast Spotify playlist? 
I have thought long and hard about this because ultimately I would add the entire Baby Driver soundtrack. But if I had to pick just one, it would be Danger Mouse, Chase Me, and it is perfect for country road driving. Excellent choice. Um, and that will be added to the playlist, definitely. So just before I let you go, do you want to uh, tell people where they can find you and, and potentially how you may be able to help people? Oh, where can you find me? You can find me on pretty much every platform on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. My website is soulfocused.co.uk. If you were going to come and see me, you're more than welcome to pop me an email for a one-to-one educational session to discuss something specific around working with your learners, doing something in your own life, or book onto a mental health first aid training course um, and equip yourself with the skills to be able to calmly and confidently deal with something if it comes up. Uh, and I'm going to take a second for anyone listening to uh, highly uh, recommend Hannah because anyone that listens to the podcast knows for well that I only get people on the show that I uh, support and endorse. But I have done some work with Hannah in those educational sessions, as she mentioned, and um, as I mentioned before, uh, helped me massively and actually enabled me to read again, which is is quite a uh, a good thing. Uh, I'd also highly recommend that you subscribe to the newsletter. It's uh, a wonderful piece of reading, and you mentioned the the uh, the. The, the mental health training course thing that you do um anyone listening keep your ears peeled because there may be something coming about that going forward but uh, for now i just want to say thank you for your time and it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me So big thank you there to Hannah. Uh, another episode that, well, I got a lot from, so I'm sure you will do too. It's always great for me hearing the perspective of someone else, someone from outside of the industry that that can explain stuff in a slightly different way that we can then tailor to suit our needs. So really enjoyed that. And it's definitely one that if you can sit down with a notepad and pen and make some notes, really beneficial and i must say since i've recorded this i've actually started doing what she said around the writing down uh three of the things three of the emotions you're feeling uh let's just say i had a worse week than i thought i did <laughs> let's put it that way um but it's it's an interesting thing to do get up on the morning do your stuff and then make three words for how you're feeling it's uh it's quite reflective and i'm, I'm going to continue doing that going forwards but I want to thank you guys as well for listening. The The, the show wouldn't be uh, the same without listeners. It'll just be me here talking to nobody. So I do really appreciate you listening, and I hope you are enjoying stuff from this show. If you have enjoyed the show, or if you haven't enjoyed the show, please give me some feedback. One of the best places to do that is on the Facebook group. I have reopened the Facebook group for the instructor. You can find links in the show notes or on the website, or just go to Facebook and search for the instructor podcast. And at the start of the week, I will put a thread up asking for feedback on this episode. So you're welcome to leave it over there, as well as having things like the Monday advertising thread, where you can advertise anything you want, uh, anything that's relevant to the industry. We've also got things on the weekend like goal setting and weekend wins and other stuff through the week as well, including a brand new ADI book club coming up where we are all reading Who's in the Driver's Seat by Jed and Claire Wilmot, and we are convening together to share our thoughts on that book. So head over to the Instructor Podcast Facebook group for more of that. But I'm just going to tell you a little bit more about the Instructor Podcast Premium. 
That is the single best way to support the show. It is the best way to support me running the show. And it's also an awesome way for you to get extra training, extra really good value at a, an affordable price training. So there are essentially three levels to this. There is a £2 tier, a £10 tier, and a £22 tier. Now, the £2 tier gets you absolutely nothing at all other than my eternal gratitude. It's just a way that you can contribute towards running of the show and anyone that does that i'm extremely grateful the 10 pound tier gets you all the podcasts and all the trainings that i do so everything that goes on over there everything that's pre-recorded goes up into the 10 pound tier so you can listen to at your leisure and there's currently over 100 exclusive trainings on there around things like mindfulness coaching the standards check websites seo building your driving school audience, all this kind of awesome stuff. So all within that £10 tier. And then if you want to up your training to an even higher level, if you want to upgrade, you can go to the £22 tier where you get everything from the £10 tier plus a bit more. It's what I call the interactive tier. So you also get access to the expert sessions, which are essentially presentations, and you can watch them live, and they're recorded, so you can go back to the recordings. There are also problem-solver sessions where four times a month I will open my Zoom room for three hours so you can come in, you can fire your problems, you can get some coaching, you can use it for accountability, anything like that. And then there's also access to watch and join in with podcasts being recorded, including episode dissections and the green room. So there's all kinds of awesome stuff over there. It is a membership, it is a subscription, so you will sign up and you will pay monthly. However, you are not required to say if you turn up and you don't like it and don't find it beneficial, you can cancel. However, I think my current retention rate is about 93 percent if you want to find out more you can use a direct link that you can find in the show notes or head over to www.theinstructorpodcast.com and one last thing i will mention is if you sign up to the 10 or 22 pound tier you will also get some exclusive discounts so bob morton offers you a 10 pound monthly discount on his client-centered learning so that's usually 30 pounds but you would get that for 20 pounds if you sign up to instructor podcast premium essentially that would mean you're getting your premium for free you also get a 50 percent discount on anything by the adi and pdi doctor lee sperry as well as discounts on go roadie culture for geeks and san harper's mindfulness courses so some awesome stuff over there, I'm sure you'll agree. But one more time, I just want to say thank you for listening. I really do appreciate you. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it. Please help me grow the show. But for now, remember, if you're not enjoying your driving lessons, you're doing them wrong. The Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook. Talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them.